call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 17 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donica Tiernan watched two Mike Lee films, 1999's Topsy Turvy and 2004's Vera Drake. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Have fun. What have you been watching mm, what over this Christmas period? Well, I've been... I'm imagining you've seen a bunch of stuff, right? Yes, I have. Uh, Me too. Uh, are you being sarcastic? No, no, I watched... I, I was trying to put off watching this week's films, so I watched two Mike Flanagan films. I watched Oculus and Ouija ah, Origin of Evil. I watched... I struggle to... I don't like calling that Ouija Origin of Evil because I feel like I'm talking about someone from Glasgow, although Glasgow is, of course, the origin of evil. <laughs> oh, so Ouija. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to call it Ouija instead. <laughs> um, those are both good films. I enjoyed them both. Yeah. I still need to watch Hush and Before I Wake so that I can complete my Mike Flanagan bingo card. Before I Wake, is that the one with Nicole Kidman and Colin Firth? I don't think so. Oh, good. I feel like it's probably got quite... It'll have the same old Mike Flanagan people in it. Ah, the Mike Flanagan players, uh, yes. Elliot from E.T., Etc. Yeah, we yeah. Uh, Ouija uh, is um, a fucking. It's a fantastic film. Um, I watched that recently for a sequel. It has no, but that I guess that ex- also explains why he went into mm. Doctor Sleep in a similar way. Although the quality of the first film is slightly different between Ouija and The Shining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. Um, Ouija's obviously better, but uh, yeah, obviously. Um, but like. In the last 30 minutes of that, it just takes some turns and you've no idea where it's going. Uh, spoil- I liked it. I enjoy it. It's scary. Scary times. Yeah, yeah. And do you generally enjoy being scared? Yeah, because it, it definitely evokes an actual reaction, like a physical reaction. Mm. I got a physical reaction also watching Vera Drake, but that wasn't fear. That was just like, <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> when she was uh, inserting certain liquids into certain places. Yeah, yeah. Fair I enough. was not a fan. I was hiding. <laughs> I, uh, I was hiding behind my covers. Let's see. I've been. Wa- I watched a couple of Sam Fuller films, and then watched a documentary about Sam Fuller. I watched uh, what The Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor, which are both worth watching. Um, I watched. Mm. I've watched the first two of Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. Um, have you mm. heard? Have you heard about these? I've heard of Steve McQueen. I'm assuming we're talking about the director, the, not the actor. The director. Yeah, he's. Um, yeah, he's made. He's finally made a project that he's had in the pipes for like 10 years which was a series of five films about um uh black britons from the west indies um like like not uh historic like the windrush generation i'm not sure what that is uh but (laughs) i don't know the 70s to around like or like no sorry late 60s to okay. late 80s is the period he kind of covers and they're not iconic figures but they're all kind of well a few of them are true stories but really i mean the first two i've watched are great films but it just kind of makes you 
recall once again like he's just he's just a master filmmaker he's amazing at making films <laughs> yeah. if that's what I, if i met him i would say, I would say you are very very good at making films like <laughs> i'm sure he'd appreciate uh, that feedback but i mean honestly there's like it's certain things of the craft in it like and the stories are great too but there's like for example the second film is all set or, or over the course of a night in a house party and like I imagine filming that stuff and making it look as fluid as he makes it turn out is very difficult um, to do. I could be wrong. I've never made a house party sequence personally. Um, Does it feature the British versions of uh, Kid and Play? What's that? That's a ref- as a reference to the film's house party and house party too. Ah. classics of the early 90s late 80s i can't remember when I, I think i've seen the first house party but a long time ago it's a classic yeah 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 uh I've also, a veritable cinematic classic also watched of course these uh two mike lee films and uh in fact these two these two mike lee joints as i like to refer to them in fabric I watched a couple of nights ago, and then last night I watched Soul, the new Pixar movie, which is excellent. Mm. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I I did plan to watch that at some stage. The other things I watched, I watched the first two episodes of The Stand. Is that The Josh Boone CBS adaptation, yep. Is it good? First two episodes, right? I liked it. It's very controversial because it tells a story in a non-chronological order, and apparently non-book readers could be easily confused, but I enjoyed it. It's quite low budget, so they had to make some changes and adapt certain things. But I think I think I feel like I've watched most virus kills a lot of people films and TV series mm. in the in the last year, and it's always fun. I think it's a nice reflection of the current times. So I enjoyed it personally, and I can't wait until I get to choose between Randall Flagg or Mother Abigail. Ooh. But if Alexander Skarsgård comes down my road, I'm going with him. Who's playing Mother Abigail? the final fight. Whoopi Goldberg. So if oh, it's a yeah. choice between Alexander Skarsgård and Whoopi Goldberg, I'm sorry, Whoopi. Randall, yeah. I have to go for Alexander Skars- yeah, Skarsgård. I mean, she was on The View for so long. Yeah. Can't be having, uh, can't be having that shit. Can be, can be following her to the to the end game. Absolutely not. Um, but The Stand, I've been looking forward to that for ages. Uh, it's good, yeah? I like. It's... I think it's mostly rated like about 6.5 out of 10 seems to be how most people rate it. I enjoyed it. I liked it. Mm. How do people... I quite liked it. How do people generally rate uh, Banshee? Probably a similar thing, I would say, because it's quite throwaway. So the stand is quite similar, I guess. It doesn't have a massive amount of depth to it. But uh, you've read the book, Mm. so, you know, it's fine. You fill in some of the blanks yourself. Okay, and what's the name of the disease again? Captain something. Captain Trips. Captain Trips. Which I think is a reference to Jerry Garcia or something. I can't remember. They do uh, They do quite a good job of showing the physical symptoms of uh, the neck swelling up. It's disgusting. Yuck. Enjoy. Like Filling the, up with fluid. Like the last yum, of yum. Oh, I ordered that um, that game that you recommended on Amazon as well. Got it. Which one is that? Ghost of Tsushima? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been playing that quite a lot recently, so that fit quite nicely with this week's film. Yes, indeed. Or what is this week's film? <laughs> well, your pick last week was Topsy Turvy, the 1999 British musical period drama written and directed by Mike Lee. Mm-hmm. It tells us tells the story of W. S. Gilbert, William Schwenk, Gilbert Schwenk, Gilbert. 
and Arthur Sullivan, a.k.a. Gilbert and Sullivan, as they write and produce their 1885 Japanese-set musical, The Mikado. The film stars, among others, Jim Broadbent and Alan Cordner as Gilbert and Sullivan, alongside a whole host of newcomers and frequent Mike Lee collaborators. The film was nominated for four Academy Awards, winning two. Any ideas what it won? Ooh, uh, costume design and set design? Costume design, yes. The other one, similar area. Uh, All the faces and stuff. Makeup. Best makeup. Any ideas what it lost? Uh, the two that it lost. Well, I was sure, did Dick Pope get nominated for cinematography? No, but Dick Pope got nominated for best name <laughs> and won that. Um, let's see. Uh, original screenplay, perhaps? Yes, correct. Nomination and, uh, for that. Director? Best fart direction. Ah, right. Fair enough. Yeah, that's basically set design, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you covered that with your first one. So what do you think won best? Do you remember what won best original screenplay? Bearing in mind this film was released in 1999, which is widely regarded as one of the finest years of cinema. Oh, 1999. Um, did, uh, 1999. Did American Beauty win? It did indeed, Mr. Alan Balls. Alan uh, Balls, American Beauty. yes. Alan Balls, <laughs> plural. Uh, what, what were the other nominees apart from Topsy Turvy? Oh, and Mr. Oh, Michael Lee. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you can you can get them. 1999, you can get these ones. Think of the big films from 1999. In the Bedroom? 1999, no, better than, I mean, I like In the Bedroom, fine, but think bigger. Mm -hmm. as in more critically acclaimed uh wider one of them you referenced uh last week we both referenced last week in the talk of mr thomas cruise oh magnolia mm -hmm. that's yeah. one of the nominees for what for best picture mm -hmm. for no for best original screenplay we're talking about american beauty won it topsy-turvy was nominated so was magnolia two others other... one of them is a, one of them is a film that scared you very much when you were a child uh, the Sixth Sense. That get, yep, that... and the other the other one is a very surreal. Uh, something think surreal. Um, one second. Here, Charlie Kaufman. Ah, oh, wish you hadn't said that. It's being John Malkovich. I know, I know, I know. You would have got it, but yeah, I yeah. thought, what the hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just there. eating up dead air here. Um, so there we go. So that's top. So then, now you've completed. You've seen all five. <laughs> Finally, after having seen Topsy Turvy, you've seen all five of those uh, Best Original Screenplay nominees. How do you feel? I feel wonderful. Uh, I feel wonderful. Me too. In, uh, yeah, well, first of all, because I found I had had Topsy Turvy on my list for a long time, um, and I found it to be, like, immediately breathtaking. Um, it is the first of his, like, period pieces that I've seen, and it's comfortable the most polished of his films that I've seen maybe probably because you know you can't use original locations you have to make your locations from scratch things like that I mean although I assume they shot in real houses and etc and uh, yeah I was really I was really not looking forward to watching this I kept putting it off mostly due to its 160 minute runtime but in reality it was really quick moving the script is excellent it's got a lot of funny banter the acting is top notch the the theater scenes really sell the period and the joy of Gilbert and Sullivan's work and ultimately I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this And then I walked around for the rest of the day singing 
making making up Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> style songs with expletive lyrics that uh, can't really be repeated here. Yeah, and you just you just uh, you just double the last line and then say something to rhyme with it. That's uh, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah. quite a simple system, yeah, but yeah. I like it. Yeah, 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 and I think I could do a good job. Do you want to talk I a little myself, bit about um, about the Mike Lee method? The Spike Lee method. Yeah, <laughs> I want to say that I think I'm basically like the best parts of Gilbert and Sullivan rolled into one. So yeah, I talk, bear that in my I actually, world. I actually have that written down in my notes to tell you. So glad we've gotten yeah. that out of the way. <clears throat> so I, I will at some stage. I remember I had the idea that we should write a musical of Heat. I still think that's a good idea. A musical of Heat? Yeah, but I feel like it's already been done is the only problem. Uh, but I think rather than a musical, it should be some kind of opera in the Gilbert and Sullivan style. An operette. I haven't, yeah, I haven't come up with any uh, any of the uh, lyrics yet. Oh, you were leading into that in the way that... No, no, you thought I was going to... I'm yes. sorry, I had nothing prepared. That just came to me right now, I'm sorry to say, but I do recall that. So one day, look out for that future project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in like... Yeah, friend. so tell me about the Mike Lee process. Just to say, okay, so well, I'll just say one thing about this mm. before you get into that is that... This film marked one of several transitions that have taken place in Mike Lee's evolution as an artist. Born to a Jewish family, Lee grew up in Manchester. As a young man, he studied acting at RADA, <clears throat> excuse me, and then had a career as a playwright and director in the theatre before moving to producing telly plays for the BBC in the 70s and 80s. After that, he started producing feature films in the late 80s and early 90s. So, yeah, that his background was in the theatre. Mm. And tell me, how did that affect his later scripted film and TV productions? Well, um, I've heard him say in interviews on a couple of occasions, and in one I listened to uh, about this film, that he, in reference to um, the character Gil Gilbert, Jim Broadman's character, who does not watch his own productions, he leaves the theatre specifically, Mike Lee said, having worked in the theater, he saw a, a lot of that going on, but he would have been of the other persuasion. He would try to mm, go in Sullivan's. He would try to go every night because though sometimes you see would see imperfection, sometimes you would just see the greatest performance of it you you would ever see. And he ha has said that his method of film production, lengthy rehearsal improvisation, is based on trying to capture that peak energy that you can get in theater on film so the way he works the way he works and i can only imagine that it would have been the process would have come slightly more structured for topsy-turvy because it's history because it's based on something that actually happened but the way he he works it is he in in his historical stuff he gives the characters time to like research the specific people but in the his completely fictional stuff, he would give the actors time, like time to rehearse, research rather the setting, and they would go into rehearsals with an A and a B and a C that they have to hit, and they improvise around that. And he 
writes the screenplays based upon those rehearsals, which is uh, something that people like. Every Mike Lee film has a finished screenplay that people stick to, but it is a finished screenplay that has been worked out between him and the actors over a period sometimes as long as six months. It's bit like I've like I've heard actors refer to it as go like going on a retreat or something because you begin the film when it begins and you begin it with him. He and this is a go on. this is a method that's used by some of the greats. Indeed, yes. Uh, I, <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry if I derailed what you were saying. I, I think that what you were saying is really, really clear in Vera Drake yes, specifically. Yes, um, more than in this film. Well, well, another thing about like Mike Lee is more clear in Vera Drake than in this film, which is that like. Mike Lee has got such a status and is such a big name that like films of his that I haven't watched kind of leer at me like a fucking Tolstoy book on my shelf. Uh, and every time I ask myself, like, uh, like what, every time I like watch one of his films, I'm like, oh, why don't I watch his films more? But Vera Drake answers that question much better than Topsy Turvy in that it's like <laughs> sometimes it can be quite emotionally draining. But yes, it's. I mean, you knew what Vera Drake was going to be before mm. you started watching it. But we'll, we'll, we'll come get to we'll get to that later. later on, right? But with this one, yeah, the, like this is a breeze. It just like the the script is so patiently structured. If you want a good example of what show don't tell means, you could do a lot worse than watching Topsy Turvy's. Every scene is like a little show with its own arc and usually its mm. own pick of Victorian. It's a very quick two-hour, forty minutes. Anyway, let's get into the the story with them. What happened? Well, let me let me tell you. Let me ask you one question. The film had a budget. Film had a budget of around ten million pounds. How much do you think it made in U.S. dollars? Ten million pounds. I thought it was somewhere north of that. Right, that's what I read online. So it must be fact. Well, did you read it on the the same site where you read everything? And I do too. <laughs> Mostly on it. This was on IMDb, this one. All right, okay. I looked up the budget. I know there, it. And then I looked up on Box Office Mojo for the, the gross. Ah, uh, fair enough. Well, I know it lost money. Um, so It did indeed. I'll say six million. Correct. Six point two million dollars. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a pity because he like I like his films preceding this made money, but I suppose that's all because they were kitchen sink realism stuff, you know. That I mean, I like quite obscure films. I like his films in general, and I would watch things like this, but. Even like the concept of this really put me off. <laughs> I just I didn't want to watch it, and then mm. as soon as I started watching it, I was like, "Oh, this is great!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but but to be fair, you don't really make something like this to make a lot of money. You're making this artistic property that you can hopefully trade on in some way in the future. But yeah, I think it's just yeah. This is this. But then this is like a, this is a, a great example of um, saving up studio street cred and then blowing it all in the one go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Although Mike Mike Lee did say he was uh disappointed to see his films constantly relegated to to small cinemas uh and to not get the wide release that he was that, that that he felt his films deserved. So he said if he could have, he would have cast Arnold Schwarzenegger as both Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> which I think would have been an interesting choice. To be on I wish I had something prepared. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have time to make a little Arnold Schwarzenegger singing a, a um, Gilbert and Sullivan song. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to do um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You go, Arnold please. Schwarzenegger doing Shakespeare in The Last Action Hero. To be yeah. or not to be, 
Not to be. Anyway. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so Topsy-Turvy Topsy marked the transition to popularity in the USA for Mike Lee. It's also his first big period film, which is something he's followed up on frequently since, as noted with the other film this week, Vera Drake. Do you have a particular favorite Mike Lee joint? Uh, this would be it now, Topsy-Turvy. Mm. Um, I enjoy this a lot, so... Yeah, I'd probably go the same. Before seeing this, probably um, another year. I really enjoyed another year, but I, I thought this. Was, I haven't seen that. This was just delightful. Yeah, the title "Topsy Turvy" as Jim Broadbent's Gilbert explains in the film comes from the concept which underpinned his librettos, or libretti is probably the correct plural of that. I just realised where things were the opposite of the norm. What's your what was your familiarity with the works of Gilbert and Sullivan before watching the film? I saw The Pirate of Penzance, uh, of Penzance in London once. Ooh. Just in the street. Yes. Just walking around. Yeah, yeah, they're nice. not doing much these days. Uh, mm. no, I went to see it in the theater. Uh mm. the Lovely. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know it was anything of mm. uh, great significance. It was quite cheap to go see it and I uh, wanted to go see something in the theater. And it, uh, I really enjoyed it to be honest. It was great crack. I would like to. I would really like to go and see some Gilbert and Sullivan uh, operetta mm. uh, in the theatre. I, I was only really familiar with the songs performed in The Simpsons, mainly by Sideshow Bob, such as uh, this one. For he himself has said it, and it's clearly to his credit that he is an Englishman. He remains an Englishman. Which is a classic. Indeed. And I would enjoy singing from time to time. Except I change the word English for a different uh, adjective. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> right, okay. So moving, <laughs> moving on to, so to the plot... The film starts on opening night of Princess Ida in 1884. Arthur Sullivan is ill with kidney disease and barely makes it to the theatre. The reviews for the show are slightly tepid, with critics accusing the pair of repeating themselves in their work. As a hot summer moves in and ticket sales slump, Richard Doily Cart, played by the great Ron Cook, uh, the owner of the Savoy Theatre, commissions Gilbert to write a new libretto. Sullivan is off in Europe recuperating from his illness, mainly by going to brothels, it seems. Uh, while Gilbert is penning a new work, Doily Cart chooses to revive one of their old works, The Sorcerer. Mm. That's a large chunk of the film I've just described. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like the first 40 minutes. I mean, it's first of all, it, it, all of that is basically set up in a, right. in a way, because... More than anything, this is a film about the, the process, I would say. So yes. much is incidental in it. You, you're watching the process. which we, like, And that is such a sublimely boring idea for a movie. And so many films I can think of them being described like that, but I can't think of the names of the film right now, as about the artistic process. But like, if it weren't Mike Lee doing it, let's say it was boring, it would be boring. But he is completely uninterested in showing you like somebody finding a work of art in the center of their soul. And he is like, well, I think he, this functions well as a biopic because it's an examination of character rather than going through, like to just focus on that short period mm -hmm. and their characters. 
is to me i appreciate that much more than the than the typical like going well, through blow by blow, blow by blow events from their life i think he's very interested in all of the characters to be honest i think that um, mm-hmm. but i think he is most interested in like the hard work and the skill and dedication at the expense of one's personal life that it takes to put together entertainment like the 10 percent inspiration scene in this features jim broadbent doing a going to a japanese exhibition and then play fighting with a samurai sword <laughs> it's like like yep. it's they almost make a mockery of it as like the 90 percent perspiration that we see like would make you draw breath and you can really really see that in what you, the point you just got to the the scene where there's a revival of the sorcerer and it's as immersive as a behind the scenes documentary i mean it's like it, the, the time has moved on enough and uh, tastes have uh, worn down and t- transformed over the years that we might not be um interested in the sorcerer itself but watching how it would have been put together is just spectacular and it works in this film kind of like here's one we made earlier in a cooking show because we're about to see them put together the the mikado and the sorcerer the sorcerer scene i found to be like stunning just to see all the moving parts and the play concurrently driving those driving those trucks full of nitroglycerin over the ravine yeah it's great yeah i know all on one stage in the savoy I have nitroglycerin. I need to put out the oil fire. My yeah. wife is pretty and French. I must get home to her. Uh, so Gilbert's idea for their next opera features a transformative magic potion, which Sullivan feels is too similar to the magic lozenge, which I like the idea of a magic lozenge, and other magic talismans used in previous operas, and mechanical in its reliance on a supernatural device. Sullivan, under pressure from the British musical establishment to write more serious music, says he longs for something that is probable, involves human interest, and is not dependent on magic. Gilbert sees nothing wrong with his libretto and refuses to write a new one, resulting in a standoff. um, Also, one of their standoffs results in just what was a very funny moment in the film for me where Sullivan says to Gilbert, uh, well, that's neither, well, no, Gilbert says, because you were off gallivanting around Europe. And he says, well, that's neither here nor there. And he goes, ha, (laughs) yes, because I was here and you were there. And you were there. (laughs) As as, as his mother says at one point, his his mother, his very elderly mother says at one point, never have a funny child. Good advice. It is. Uh, so the the standoff is ultimately broken after Gilbert visits a Japanese arts and crafts fair in Knightsbridge that you mentioned and basically becomes a big weeaboo. Starts getting into the 19th century equivalent of anime. He buys a samurai you, sword you, you, which you, he hangs on his wall. You're going to have to fill in the yeah. blanks on those two references you made just there. <laughs> he becomes like a... He's, he looks like he's getting into... Uh, Japanese culture and becoming like a kind of anime or manga nerd. Is that what they call them? The, the, they're called weeaboos. I've never heard that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I need to spend less time online. And anime? What's an anime? Oh, an- anime. Oh, the right. Thing. I, thought anime. You, I thought you were saying the like thing. anime. No, like no yeah. <laughs> anime. That Fanny May. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> one, of the, one of the prostitutes that Sullivan was seeing. Mm. Fanny May. Uh, <laughs> So Gilbert buys a samurai sword, which he hangs on the wall. When the sword falls one evening, it gives him the seed of an idea as he dances around like that Star Wars kid back in the day. Remember that video? 
and that idea grows into mm. his next work, the Mikado. Yeah. Uh, though the film, though the film shows Gilbert coming up with the idea for the Mikado after visiting the Japanese exhibition, in reality he had already finished writing the first act of the libretto by the time the exhibition came to London. Mike Lee, you lying fucker. Boo! I don't like that. I don't like that. Get out. To know that. Get out. Yeah. Get out of here. Sorry. Sorry, reality. That that has disappointed me massively. Um. Yeah. What did you make of all the Japanesey stuff? Uh, I thought it was. I I've said before that uh, I I really enjoy um, film like films from a different era in a far off location. Um, now this is not that. This is uh, and when I say transported to the world of Knightsbridge, that, that, like this is a period piece. said that there were no cameras did not exist back then. But I feel like Mike Lee doing a period piece is as close as you can get. Uh, so I, this just felt very real to me. Um, it's all in the background details and everything, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that later. But um, okay. I found his trip to the yeah, to the Japanese exhibition just just really interesting to watch because it seemed quite plausible. I'm sure Mike Lee did his research. Yeah. He's still alive. Yeah, all the all all the Japanese stuff seems quite accurate. Which is funny because then all the character names and everything that he put into the opera are completely ridiculous and not not Japanese at all. Just gobbledygook. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. So he was, uh, yeah, basically cultural appropriation of the time, taking all these Japanese things and distorting them to make money. And that's why we should never watch any Gilbert and Sullivan op- opera ever, um, ever again. I'd be pretty sure they're cancelled by now, are they not? Oh God! Well, uh, later. Well, I'll come to a section later on that definitely would be cancelled. Um, so, in the next section of the film, we see the rewriting and rehearsal process leading all the way up to opening night. Some memorable scenes include the leading actors asking Doily Cart for raises, only to be overcome by the oysters they ate for lunch and having to run off to the bathroom. Yeah, uh, Gilbert also did that. Mm-hmm. Did, that almost seemed like they poisoned them. It was an odd thing. I didn't really get it. It does. It did feel like, yeah, for some. Like it, I, it was part. It was just, all just, just some, a farce. I think it was just farcical. Okay, fair enough. More than anything else, I don't think we're supposed to assume that Doily Cart had somehow made them eat oysters. The only person who didn't eat oysters at the table was Tommy from Train Spotting, Kevin McKidd, because he's more interested in in skag, presumably, and dying of toxoplasmosis. Yeah, I um, That's have a reference to train spying. Indeed, yes. I, I don't like to say the word uh, the the T word anymore in case uh, my pregnant girlfriend hears it and has a freak attack. Pregnant ladies okay. are scared of toxoplasmosis. <gasps> Stay away from cat shit. I said it. I said it. I, have you ever been involved in anything to do with the theater? Uh, well, funny you should mention it. So uh, we ourselves, we both. Uh, did uh, we were in a, we were involved in a fringe production? Oh yes. and quite a production it was. However, that was not actually my Edinburgh Fringe debut. Uh, I made my Fringe debut when I was a teenager. This is true. I was in a play called The Vackies, which is uh, set in the Second World War, and I played a young boy from Somerset who Somerset who uh, did not welcome the young children who were evacuated from London. Uh, we we were not friends with them. And so I sang a lot of songs on stage and I had about six lines. Oh, wow. Uh, before the show. Yeah, and that really uh, got my energy up for all the words I had to say on stage. 
Hey now, uh, no, I, yeah, I, I had to buy, <laughs> I had to deliver six lines of dialogue. Um, yeah, it was it was a, a wonderful time. Probably one of the finest theatrical performances you're ever likely to see. Have you a video of it? No, uh, unfortunately, because this was in a time before uh, we were able to record video. How old were you? I don't know. Probably about twelve or something. Hmm. Thirteen. You see, I've put on, I've put on plays. I put on. A, I remember, a, right? Yeah, yeah, a, a, a couple of different things. Then you do like Killer Joe. I did Killer Joe, yes. And actually, this is one nice. of the, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up, is because this in the like so once they establish the Mikado and try to get it off the ground, uh, and it, and you go through the rehearsal process, I, I like it looks just like loads and loads and loads of work. Yeah, looks yes. like there's one scene. There's a scene where the three actors rehearse around a piano with Sullivan. And as I watched, yeah. I thought to myself that in that scene alone is encompassed more skill than I've applied to anything in my 33 <laughs> years alive, except maybe this podcast. Yeah, because, because they go over every single aspect. Mm. They respond to notes directly. Mm. They clearly have memorized everything perfectly. Yes, and like and actors in the Victorian age uh, didn't had no qualms about taking line readings. As a matter of fact, yeah, that line readings were all right. But no, I wanted to sort of bring it up because just uh, the reason I decided to uh, put to put on Killer Joe was because. There was there was two things really. There was all these vacant spaces around Limerick, the city where I was living in Ireland, because I had been hit hard by the by the credit Bombs. crisis, whatever. Um, and the council were opening them up as art spaces, and I said, "What well, should we take? What we'll put on a play?" And the main reason I wanted to do it was um, there had been a friend of mine who was had put on a play, and it had been really good, and it was take like it, he just wasn't arsed putting on another one, and I really really wanted to push him to do it, particularly because he had let me act in in it, and I wanted to act in another one because I quite enjoyed it. So I said, "Fine, I'm going to put on a play." This was at least this is how spiteful and silly I was, and the play turned out well, but at least. 50% of my motivation was to show him how easy it was to put on a play. And what and I, that friend was Martin McDonough. Well, no, no, that friend was Adam Lahey. If you're listening, Adam, I'm sorry. Um, because what I learned in the course of that was that it is extremely fucking difficult to put on a play. It's the most difficult mm. thing in the world. And that was working with not very much money and much less actors than these are here. And I just can't imagine how anybody could have the fortitude to do this ever and remain sane. I heard that Mike Lee's next project is going to be about that staging of Killer Joe that you put on. I should hope so. So I look forward to that. I got overcharged by a bunch of hippies for a backdrop they painted. Scumbags. Yeah. So uh, Gilbert also employs some Japanese ladies from the Arts and Crafts Fair to teach the actresses how to walk like Japanese schoolgirls. Uh, we see the great Kevin McKidd as Durward Lely protesting at the short length of his yukata. That's his kimono-y thing. We see Timothy Spall's Richard Temple, the legendary Timothy Spall, singing his big solo number, which Gilbert cuts from the show, only to later reinstate after being hounded by the entire cast. Uh, we also see Martin Savage's George Grossmith injecting morphine to deal with the pressures of opening night. And that takes us up to opening night itself. Finally, we see the whole show come together. Everything goes as planned. Uh, this sequence features the only exterior shots of the entire film. 
as Gilbert is accosted by an elderly prostitute in an alleyway. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's mm, right. Yeah. The similar, and Vera Drake, the only exterior shots in Vera Drake are at the start when she's walking just outside her house. Mm. So uh, Mike Lee, again, saving some money, shoot everything indoors. I mean, you say, I say saving some money, but if you're shooting in a big theater with beautiful sets and everyone in costumes, it's probably not cheap. It's odd. I would have never thought mil. about that, but I do remember reading an interview with Mike Lee about his film, um, Mr. Turner, about uh, the painter mm, Turner and yeah. um, Mike Lee. Turner and Hooch. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mike Lee. The sequel to Turner and Hooch. Now that Hooch is dead. Yes, and Turner becomes a, a famous English painter mm. uh, known as the painter of light. God, some people live so many lives in one. Um, but uh, yeah, I recall Mike Lee saying in the interview that it was a big, big change for him shooting so much outdoors. That was all. Your uh, uh, oh, for the oh, for the Mr. Turner. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. He's like, "What's all this light? God damn it!" But I mean, of course, of course, he would end up shooting mostly um, inside for this, just because the inside details of the period is such an important part of the of the film. It's mm. like you just you really get the sense of the sort of Victorian aesthetic. Like, when like, you're in the theater, it is important to be. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I would, I would, there's a lot of takeaways from this, but I would say, I would say anybody would be very hard pressed for their biggest takeaway not to be the Victorian sense of the aesthetic, which I mean, is a dweeby way of saying that the sets are really cool. But really, like when you say the sets, you mean, the sort of like appreciation that societies as far as like World War Two, basically pre-television societies had for beauty and like beautiful things mm-hmm. in their home. Everything had to be just beautiful down to like little instruments. And yeah, some of the set design in the houses looks quite similar to Fanny and Alexander. Have you ever for the have you ever been to the Metropolitan Museum in New York? Yes, I have. You know, the whole, like they've got a whole section of it of interior design of different periods. And for me, it's the best part of the museum. You just go into these giant houses, like you get to go into a Victorian house, an Edwardian house, a 1920s like New York townhouse, and just see. How- for me, the best the best part of the museum is uh, it's a recommended donation to enter. But if you just say you don't want to pay anything, they let you in. Yes. Did you pay anything? I think we paid a very small amount, like $5. Ah. And they recommend it. You're supposed to pay like 25 The Metropolitan Museum is also the mu- uh, the museum where I learned that if you're going to a museum that's quite big, figure out what you want to see most first and go to see that first. And then Fanny about, don't go in the, the gift shop. Yes, exactly. The gift go shop. to the cafe. Buy a key ring to prove you were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I like I felt like that was just, just looking at the little details was... Um, the thing I got most out of the film, probably. Um, and like it, like, but you know, that said, like you meet saying that the interiors are the biggest thing in it. Like the film ends in a very, like in a deeply sort of a humane way. And like each of the main players yeah. get, and some of the less than main players they're given their human struggles are put into the fore. Like we haven't even mentioned Gilbert's. These are the, yeah. These are the realist dramatic moments yeah. are in the closing section of the film as Gilbert's wife recounts an idea for an opera that hints at her sadness at not having had children. That's a beautiful is, scene, isn't it? It is. I it's very, very, very sad. Yeah. And then similarly, Sullivan's lover tells him that she's pregnant, but will have an abortion, something she seems to have done a few times while with Sullivan. Mm. As she says, I'll take care of it myself this time, big man. 
And um, that yeah, we've got what's her name, Moaning Myrtle, Shirley Shirley Henderson, uh, uh, another fine Scottish actress, as an alcoholic. And uh, yeah. it's interesting how that's referred to earlier on in the film because you've like, got that you know that problem you have, yeah, young lady. Well, I didn't actually know what that was. I didn't know that it was alcoholism that they. I thought they were talking about the fact that she has a child out of wedlock. In Victorian London, alcoholism mm. was a really big deal and a big problem because you had the the invention of of gin had basically spread through the poorer classes like heroin you know everybody was mm-hmm. like on the gin basically and it like it could like it could completely ruin you because the um it was unregulated production it was basically just bathtub gin that sort of shit you know what i mean not like what we think a gin was just um uh, a word a gin was like moonshine let's say you know what right I mean? yeah just bathtub it's stuff just alcohol yeah yeah exactly alcohol. and as we saw in the prostitute but in the prostitute that it costs gilbert on the way out of the theater what you know an alcohol addiction can do back in the day an irish prostitute was she irish i believe so hmm. um yeah and also when we see uh martin savage's what's his name george grossmith like his morphine use when he rolls up his sleeve mm. to shoot up the state of his arm. <laughs> he looks like he's about to, you know, have his arm chopped off. Requiem for a dream style. It's, it's it doesn't look good. He's got a lot of uh, track marks up and down it. Yeah. But I mean, scary times. The sh- so you've got your morphines, you've got your gins. The show must go on though. I am. And in this, like, uh, Indeed. yeah. Uh, not, I'm not even referring to this. Show. I'm, you know, the theater truism that people say. No, I the show, got it. The show must go on. Um, the film was uh, the film was both praised and criticized for the decision to have the actors do their own singing. What did you make of of it? Uh, yeah, I read that and I thought, what a nonsense criticism. I mean, it's clearly the, I agree. it's clearly the better decision. They're all f- absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, a, what what kind what fucking goofball said that? Like, uh, probably a th- probably someone who wasn't cast in the film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a shocking. I don't. It's a terrible technical standard of singing. Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins wanted in, and uh, what do you mean? Can I sing? They should have gone for Russell Crowe. Who's, well, he's a tremendous singer. What are you talking about? Yep, indeed. Uh, I am a big fan of what's his band called? Thirty odd feet of grunts. Thirty odd foot grunts, yeah. And of course, yeah, of the movie right. Les Miserables. Yes, Les Les Miserables. Les- it's about this guy <laughs> called Leslie Miserables. Les Miserables, who's very unhappy. I could have watched constantly. another hour of this, to be honest. I, I like, I, I enjoyed it so much. Um, yeah, I was, I was really into it, which uh, was a massive relief considering how much I was fearing it. And as I say afterwards, I was walking around singing made-up Gilbert and Sullivan-style songs myself mm. and also speaking a bit more like the characters. It's funny because, like, when something like what you're talking about happens to me, um, yeah, I, I, I do get blown away because I would, yeah, get intimidated by things like this. Not just, it's like either sometimes I'd get intimidated by them just because they're so acclaimed and I don't want to be a moron. And then sometimes I'm looking at them and like in the case of Topsy Turvy, or I remember it happening with Amadeus before as well. Another film about the theater, just looking at them going and going, that looks deathly boring. Like I've convinced myself it's boring and it's just not, it's, yeah. it's, it's terrific. Yeah. It's, it's madly entertaining. Um, and like in the case of something like Topsy Turvy, it is critically critically acclaimed for a very clear reason. 
and you can see it in the watching. I would say the same for Vera Drake, but unlike Topsy Turvy, which I could have watched for another hour, I, <laughs> I have to say I breathed a sigh of relief when Vera Drake was over. Within the first two minutes of Vera Drake, I was like... Imelda Staunton, I get it. I understand why she was nominated mm. for like every single Best Actress. Oh and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, she won a few, but uh, yeah, she was nominated for an Oscar, Berlin, Venice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oh yeah, she can. I think she's just incredible in this. Yeah, um, I remember when like Vera Drake came out, and at the time I would have been a regular cinema goer, and like I would have been familiar with this film by its none more kitchen sink realism type poster or by seeing it on the listings yeah, and her face. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Dunica of 2004 would have probably looked at it and thought who in God's name would want to go and see that. <laughs> Back when you were the staunch pro-life advocate, that used to <laughs> bomb clinics. When I was a Philistine, um, mm. when I was a Philistine. Yes. Uh, do you know what a Philistine is, Andy? Yes, it is a stein that fills. Hmm. Well, actually, according to Jeff Daniels from The Squid and the Whale, it is somebody who doesn't have uh, interesting opinions and doesn't watch good movies and stuff. And also, isn't isn't their dog called Mahler because they're a bunch of twats? Something like that. I mean, they're meant to be a bunch of twats. In a, yeah, yeah. Anyway. yeah. Anyway, I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about topsy-turvy that my appreciation for what Mike Lee does and how often I watch his films, uh, it doesn't quite add up to the sum of zero. And Vero Drake is a prime example of why, because it is emotionally draining. It is tough. And this isn't really a bad thing in my book. I'd halfway like subscribe to Roger Ebert's definition of cinema as an empathy machine. And as mm. like such, like well-made happy films make you happy and well-made uh, films about post-war working class Britain make you want to make the most <laughs> out of your Disney Plus subscription. Yeah, this is set in 1950, and I'm very happy that I did not experience working class 1950s London. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... I've, here, like, I'll veer into uh, some arty farty stuff, but have you ever read... Um, have you ever read T.S. Eliot's poem, uh, The Wasteland? No, but I probably could because it's a poem and it's short. I mean, when you talk about books, I think if, in my head I'm going, well, I'm never going to read that, obviously. But I probably could go as far as a poem. Well, it's it's a long poem. Uh, but Well, then count me out. <laughs> okay, if you could just give me the cliff notes, that would be great. <laughs> well, like it's an in-depth um, kind of poetic description of just what a lost, broken society Britain was after the two wars. Let's call it what it is. It's the two wars. They didn't get the big boom of the roaring 20s like they got in America. They got tough times in the 20s. They got the Great Depression, same as anybody else. And then they got the shit beat out of them for the war Fucking as hell, well. It's a long poem. Uh, I'm looking at it now. It's massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a short story. I, and that's what the whole, the whole play is about is. And I think like... Before, like before I begin to break, break down the plot, I'd like to say that as much as Topsy Turvy is a film about Gilbert and Sullivan and the production of the Mikado, this is a film about a fictional woman named Vera Drake and about abortion. But in so much as that film is about the world of entertainment production and Victorian society, this one is about class divisions in post-war Britain. And like abortion rises to the top of the issue, pile it being the lake of fire that it is, but it floats along kind of like a moving lens 
through which you can view the divisions in Brit British society. Most of the characters outside the immediate Drake family seem to have been concocted to make some sort of a point or other, though naturally by way of the Lee method they come across as anything but concocted with one with one exception, I would say. Who do you think my exception is? Mm, wait, can you repeat that? Sorry. Who do you think? The last little part. <laughs> do you know what? I was in my head, I was thinking about Nathan Drake and I was like, I wonder how Vera Drake could fit into the Uncharted game series. <laughs> that was where my brain was going. <laughs> so I apologize. Could you repeat that last little section? <laughs> I say most of the characters outside the Drake yeah. family seem like they could be concocted to make some sort of a point, but they don't really come across that way because the Mike Lee method and because they're good actors, except for one. Yeah, okay, I know who you're talking about. I know who you're talking about the uh, the brother's wife. Yes, Joyce. Joyce is just a... awful, awful, awful. She's just there for you to hate her. Yes, yes. There's yes. no other reason. She's just there for the the audience to go like, ugh. She's basically. Have you watched Peaky Blinders? I've watched about the first two or three seasons. She's Arthur's wife in Peaky Blinders, basically. That's that's all she mm. is. Um, okay. Anyway, so, yeah, the film opens in Manchester in 1950, and we're introduced to Vera as, first of all, caring for an invalid neighbour, then her ailing mother, and then her own family. And I say ailing mother, and that's something, that's saying something like, as everybody appears to be ailing. <laughs> uh, Everyone is dying. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone is dying of some kind of consumption style. I don't know. Or like, yeah, they've got some kind of chronic ME and they're just in bed, <laughs> but it's also wasting. They're wasting away to nothing. Like existence is crushing them. Which like, like all the better because then Imelda Staunton's Vera, Vera Drake stands out as an angel of some sort, basically. <laughs> and uh, in the opening minutes, in the in the first in the first half of the film, she just has this kind of positive, nervous energy. Mm. And then when we reach the pivotal point where things fall apart, her face just crumples. And then for the rest of the film, she's crying. But in the first half of the film, she's just this the most positive person you could possibly imagine. Yeah, she's like read, an angel, as you say. Reads the secret, and you know that's right. Pays it forward, keeps it. She's visualizing. Yeah, exactly. She's she's Haley Joel Osment. She keeps a gratitude diary. Stands out as an angel. Eddie. And then in the opening minutes, she invites Eddie Marsden's Reg, a social Marsan. Yeah, uh, it's for, like. Have you ever watched? He's an actor for me that will be forever colored. He always plays the same role. Do you think? Often plays like a sort of weird. Well, he's got the kind of, his 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 body language is perfect for this type of character. Unfortunately for him, his career will be forever colored by one particular role of his. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Not off the top of my head. I wonder if it's something I've seen. Have you seen This Is England '86? Ah, uh, I don't know if I've watched all of the TV series. That's the first one, and he, that's the first TV series. Yes, I. Was was he like a rapist or something? Yes, he was. He carried, right. A, Does he he rapes? Uh, what's her a name? A teenager. Um, the main. Um, no, the, the, he doesn't wait, rape Vicky McClure. She plays his daughter. All oh, right. Yeah, she, yeah, he, yeah. Rapes, oh, okay. he rapes her friend, and it's implied that he had raped her at some point. He has a big, dirty, horrible beard, giving a bad name to bearded men everywhere. Um, and uh, for me, he's forever coloured by that. So whenever he comes along, despite the fact that I feel like you're supposed to 
want to reach out sympathetically to him. For me, he just uh, kind of scares me a little bit. Um, he does have, he's got like that kind of school shooter energy. Mm. Anyway, so she... In, in a lot of his performances, sorry, continue. No, no worries. This is this is Reg anyway. He's a socially awkward bachelor neighbor. Oh, hi, Reg. Who uh, see, seems to take poor care of himself. Um, and she invites him around to tea that he might eat something more substantial than bread and drippings. Um, dripping. What is bread and dripping? I think it's just bread dipped into fat, right? Like lard. <laughs> is that what dripping is? I think it's just lard. I mean, and then they're having a they're they're talking. Yeah, it's melted fat that has melted and dripped from roasting meat. Oh, that sounds wonderful to me. Animal fat. So he's just eating bread and animal fat, and they're having a discussion about it. Yeah, you want you want real food, don't you? That's why I eat dripping every night. You'll die. You'll become a fat bastard, <laughs> and then you'll die. That's uh, a rough. <laughs> approximation of the dialogue i had this point put to the side to make at the end but i sure i'll throw it in now so this is this is um okay it's 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 shot from certain angles that bring to mind another type of filmmaking but the cinematography and the choice of cameras it's themselves and by extension i suppose the content of the actual story is quite soapy in a way that the adjective is only applicable to two British soaps that I can think of, which made me kind of think to myself, in every other what? country in the world, soapy probably means something substantially less horrific than you get to see in your average episode of, or at least what they were back in the day, I haven't watched them in years, Coronation Street or EastEnders, which would have been hardcore social realism at times, to be honest. Um, I, and it just once I realized that I was getting that kind of energy out of it, I, I thought to myself, wow, man, I mean, the stuff that, that used to be included on Coronation Street and EastEnders back in the day was hardcore compared to, like, I don't know, your standard Australian soap or the tele novellas that you see in Spain or, or shit like that. You know, you follow me? Yeah, because I think, yeah, I know what you mean, but that's what they wanted to show of, like, this was their view of working class British life. I mean, I'm talking about the soap operas. Mm. That's exactly how, that's that was the lens that they decided to, to view working class England through, was like, okay, um going to be mostly trauma <laughs> things, <laughs> things don't go well there's going to be some murders he done a murder there's going to be all kinds of those fun and games and uh life is generally miserable but i think that is an accurate depiction of the uk anyway uh where did you think we would wind up with uh, the marsden character reg at this point in the story when we meet i need to point out i need to point out his name is eddie marsan uh i oh, wasn't sure yeah I wasn't sure what they were going to do with him. I, uh, to be honest, I didn't really... I guess I had some clue as to where the film was going. I guess everything sort of worked out how I thought it was going to. But uh, seeing Eddie Marsan getting married, paired off with their daughter, Ethel, is mm. just... That's a, that's a fun pair. <laughs> I want to go to that wedding. So, anyway, yeah. So, before everything falls into place story-wise, we're introduced to Vera's family. Her husband, Stanley, her son, Sid, and her cripplingly shy daughter, Ethel. In a scene for that's shot very much in the Ozu style of interiors. I don't know, did you, did you know that, Andy? But that kind of tenement composition is very much of the Japanese director, Ozu. Um, yeah, no, I, when you when you reference EastEnders, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. But when you're referencing Japanese directors, that's something else. All right. Sorry, sorry about that. 
Oh. You were talking about the interiors of Zoo? Yes, no, no. And then we see Reg begin to court uh, Ethel, of course. Um, how did you get on with Alex Kelly's portrayal of Ethel? It seemed slightly over the top. I know, what I, I feel like I've seen that character a million times. I was um, thinking about this quite a lot because, okay, when you first... When you first see her, she she's almost like a hunchback. She's so cripplingly yes. shy. And then when occasionally yeah. you catch full glimpses of her face, she's actually got a pretty face, right? Yeah, she's all right. Um, and I thought like – so I've read that um, large sections of this were based on things Lee remembers from his childhood. And I thought mm. like, may, like back in post-war Britain, I mean there must have – there was zero time for the luxury of – self-care and you know mental awareness and looking after yourself and i suppose it would be very possible for somebody to with without help to just become absolutely cripplingly shy i feel mm. like i've met like like uh, people like that from my mother's part of the country in ireland like um like ladies in their 70s who never really left their parents house and they're just like they just live lived alone now and barely spoke well, I feel like you're going to see more and more of this uh, as a result of uh, COVID, probably. Do you think? Yeah, because there, there's going to be people who lack socialization. I mean, uh, for a younger generation, it could be could have drastic consequences. But there's things if it's in a period of well, what I'm saying necessary is, development. Is, Sorry, you, oh, do you think that would be the, crew, the the key thing that it's it's like? That's what I've read. Hmm. No, because I, I would be thinking that these days we kind of, uh, uh, people are an awful lot uh, more aware of their mental health and things they can do to help themselves. And they're encouraged to do these things. And I feel like nobody would have been encouraging anything of the sort back in the day. Yeah, well, clearly we have more access to the tools necessary to solve the problem. But I'm guessing there's still a large portion of society that is not mm. aware or on board with mental health. Yeah. All right. Cool. Congrats. Right. So we see Vera clean the houses of the rich, uh, and then just as routinely carry about carry out abortions on young women. We later hear the procedure more or less vernacular vernacularized as helping women out. Um, we see the full spectrum of society and the women Vera helps out from a woman with seven children who can't bear the idea of an eighth to a young Caribbean immigrant who seems utterly destitute even with Vera's help. Uh, to a couple of women who drink throughout the procedure and for whom it seems almost a casual encounter. We learn the abortions are arranged and charged for by a woman she's known for years named Lily, who we also see sells rationed goods on the black market and gives no money to Vera. From oh, is that what they were? I didn't realize they were rations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she gives no money. That's how the police get the name out of Lily, I'm convinced. Um, she gives no money to Vera. So essentially we learn that Vera does the abortions for free and does not know that Lily is receiving payment. Um, what was it like the device or intention of Vera not charging, do you think? Well, I think that's hinted at later on in the police interrogation scene when it's revealed that she first became aware of this method because she had it done to her. Mm. So it seems that she suffered, she was raped when she was much younger mm. and then uh, went through a similar process to... Amazing how uh, much is communicated the by Imelda Staunton's face because she barely says anything yep. in the second half of the movie and it's all mm. answered. answered. 
Yeah, we're introduced yeah. to a couple of subplots around this time as well, whose function is entirely right, Hawkins. to sort of um, provide context for Vera's story and um, in turn for the plight of the young women that she helps out. First of all, we meet um, Sally Hawkins, who um, is a cleaner who works in a factory and has sex with a fish man and not wanting no. to give what? birth to the mutant Oh, right, okay, sorry, uh, I'm stepping over you. <laughs> and, uh, so, wait, 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 it's a different movie, it's a different movie. I'm reading, go again, go again. I'm reading the wrong Wikipedia page. Although, I mean, if any, I mean, if, if ever there would have been a, a case for an abortion, it would be having a fish baby, one could argue. Yeah. Uh, so, no, first we meet Sally Hawkins as Susan, the daughter of one of Vera's employees, who, who employers, rather, who is uh, raped on a date in a scene that's given like ever more potency by her attacker, never quite wearing the villain hat in his own eyes. That's a real creepy, horrific scene. Mm -hmm. No, is just that everything involving star Sally Hawkins uh, from her rape to mm. going to the doctor is just all horrible. Yeah. It's all very um, Clarice Starling. I felt it does. There's a there is a certain point where you're like, yeah, maybe men are yeah, yeah, yeah. pieces of shit. Maybe we should be exterminated. <laughs> there is some argument to be made here. Yeah. Have you ever got, maybe they're onto something? Have you ever gotten that from the Silence of the Lambs? Because Which? I hadn't this. I had I probably watched the Silence of the Lambs a lot when I was younger, and then um, I went to see it last year, I think, in Phenomena, first time in years. And I, I just sort of like there the the only man in the film who gives any sort of credit to Clarice Sterling is Hannibal Lecter. Everybody mm -hmm. else patronizes her and treats her like shit, and that's how she ends up on Buffalo Bill's door. Um, and she gets out of that with her own sort of chutzpah, you know. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that, but when I but when I think about that, that seems typical of that period like even like in the early 90s i i assume mm. things have hopefully they've changed slightly but in the early 90s it was she was viewed as like a female fbi agent what what are they gonna have next female doctors like i feel like it was viewed in that type of way anyway i think that's where society was really so it wouldn't have been like yeah so it would have been a big deal to have her front and center uh, i think so huh. i feel like that's what i recall i mean i was only a kid when that came out but um i seem to feel that's kind of what it was it was like wow like this is impressive she's a kind of like semi badass fbi agent well i don't like watch it again i don't actually think jonathan demi showcases it so much like that i think like i th like he i think he's firmly firmly on her side so side maybe like i'm, I'm mm -hmm. getting it wrong but um i found it very powerful and i saw i got a lot of the same energy from the way that susan has dealt with so first of all for, first of all when she tells her friend about it her friend says you're in trouble again aren't you the very coded language um, oh no! How she says, "Have you gotten yourself into trouble?" Which is a horrific way. The, the lady's been raped, um, mm -hmm. and it's a that rape scene is like you know you can have, have your all your Gasper no way shite um, you want, which is just you know it's disturbing in its gratuity. But that scene in particular, she feel like she, it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She like there's happy music playing and you basically see that she's got no way of escaping. She's got no way of overpowering him. 
and that's just it. It's gonna it's gonna happen. We don't need to see it happen. It's like it's again we've stumbled into it a few times. Is what's implied is so much more just rotten. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we see Susan seek and procure an abortion by legitimate means, which mean um, means by which actually until recently were the only way to procure an abortion in the Republic of Ireland, where I'm from. Um, mm-hmm. uh, by dem- so by demonstrating to a psychiatrist that your own health is at stake should you be made to have your baby her and the she she talks to arthur sullivan uh alan cordiner is he the psychiatrist he, yeah he's a psychiatrist who's basically asking her like well what does the <laughs> what about the father what about the what about the rapist father's rights mm. and it, she has to suggest that she's going to commit suicide and that she has she has to say she has mental illness in her family yeah, and then, yeah, and the doctor in no way pursues the idea that she was raped, which um, I suppose society wasn't really into back then, in a way. Uh, also, that abortion cost uh, about 100 guineas compared to Vera's two-guinea job. Which, uh, uh, Vera doesn't see a dime of that money. Um, nope. Anyway, right, did you expect this subplot to tie back in, by the way? Yeah, I thought like she was gonna. It didn't work, and then she had to go to Vera to mm. get an, another one or something. Like I didn't realize at the start that it was just showing us the context of the time period and what it meant. Yeah, I would like there was part of like a small bit of my head was thinking, oh, Mike Lee is teasing with this with the, this stuff to show us, um, you know, how life is as opposed to films. But then I was like, no, we're teasing ourselves. He's just making a film the way he wants to make it. It's it's my stupid expectations that are playing with the uh, and then she'll she'll pay for Vera's lawyer or something like that. You know? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't she's expecting like, something I like that. I had an abortion yeah. myself, yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. I respect your job. Yeah, yeah. But the first thing the first thing I Googled after watching the film was the method of abortion that they showed. And uh, there's a Guardian article from a former midwife in the 1950s called Jennifer Worth, who claims that injecting disinfectant and carbolic soap solution into a woman's uterus will almost certainly kill her. And she criticized the film for showing this method of abortion due to the harm it would cause if copied. Mm, I mean, I'm willing to go with both the midwife and Mike Lee on this one, quite frankly, because, well, that that lady, I'm sure she's being sincere in what she says. I'm I would be fairly certain that Mike Lee would have spoken to some fairly sincere people himself. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Mike Lee knows about the inside of a woman's body. Pretty sure he's. Now, He's the authority. way to spin that around and make me a... <laughs> yeah, I think I'm sure Mike Lee... A white man. Is he, yeah, I'm sure he's the authority on, what, <laughs> on how women's bodies work. Uh, well, I'm glad we can get some... Did you laugh at any point during this film? Oh, uh, I got... I, I, some of the banter with uh, Sid, Daniel... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Chris O'Dowd, what, what accent was he doing, by the way? Which part of Ireland is that? Um, was there a specific part of Ireland? The part made up for Americans? Um, uh, no, no, no. I, I suppose it would be the Midlands. He's probably from the Midlands. Anyway, yeah. It's quite a Darby O'Gee and the little people. Darby O'Gill. Um, anyway, yeah. The second subplot then concerns Frank and Joyce, Stan's brother and his wife, respectively, who live in a more middle-class existence in the suburbs and are at the early stages of family planning themselves themselves joyce is kind of um zeroed in on and performed as a villain from moment one um 
what, like Lee's done. The, have you ever seen his film Secrets and Lies? Yes, but I watched it in the nineties, and I can't really remember it very well. Well, it's very much about worlds colliding, as well, mm. it, because it, like a poor working class unemployed alcoholic woman gets contacted by a daughter she gave up for adoption, who's uh, gone on to a lovely polished middle class existence for her herself and their kind of two worlds collide and he, that's a lot of the meat you get from it he's interested in this kind of thing i feel you get another one of you get another dose of that in what's it called oh well of course in in naked as just johnny collides with everyone it's such a horror show that he is uh, what like what do you think was the purpose for this uh, just to show contrast with the working class yeah i don't because of anything in the film this could be the most easily excised i'd say yeah absolutely i don't really know what the purpose is of showing that just really showing someone that she already disliked vera even before the story broke so and then afterwards she's treating her like a piece of shit so yeah yeah yeah, i don't really know she She just like some people are dicks seems to be what the character represents yeah she calls vera a busybody uh, anyway, yeah. anyway, Reg and Ethel become engaged just around the time we see Vera give an abortion Yay. to a young lady named Pam, whose mother accompanies her and recognizes Vera by name. Um, the Drakes organize a party to celebrate the engagement, and we see Pam admitted to hospital and almost dying following her procedure. Her mother, who, when pressed, first gives up, who first gives up Lily's name who then gives up Vera's name to police. The police arrives at the Drake's just at the moment when Joyce announces she's pregnant, stealing the thunder from Reg and Ethel. What uh, a bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Imagine that. She's there celebrating their engagement and she's like, I'm pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just... What a scumbag. Yeah. That's like getting married at someone else's wedding. That's like, you know, like if you're at someone else's wedding and you propose to your partner what a shitbag move oh it is a total shitbag oh she's a shitbag character yeah uh, lee registering his uh, loathing of the middle class anyway yeah uh, so the police arrive looking to talk uh, to vera have you heard about how this scene was prepared and sub- sub- uh, subsequently scripted yeah my understanding was that so you could if you want to go into what you were saying about the rehearsal process of how you how they bring all the the actors together for a period of time well in the case of this each, each of the each of the characters were given uh just each of the actors were given a character and they knew the the setting and the era and that was it they were given scenes to rehearse so they they, they had no idea they they didn't know that that's what i was wondering about that like I guess he got all the actors on board because he's like, yes, I'm Mike Lee. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, if you would that's like to be in my film, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrence Malick does it in a similar way and then just cuts them out of the movie and goes, ha <laughs> ha. Mm. Um, but yeah, the only um, character who knew, the only actor, I keep mixing them up, right. the only actor who knew that it was about Imelda abortion Staunton. was Imelda Staunton and the actors playing the police officers, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so the script that emerged from that rehearsal was based on the reactions of the actors playing the family in character. Oh my God. In character, uh, in character being confronted with this so of course they don't She's actually done an abortion they don't actually find <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> they don't actually find out why the police are there for quite a bit because she vera takes the police vera knows immediately why the police are there and has to be taken in another room 
in order that her family be spared the knowledge of her crimes on the day of the party. She makes a full confession and submits her kit as evidence and is taken to the police station. Her family are still very much in the dark at this point. Everyone except Joyce in this scene is just stunning, um, Staunton especially, and the police immediately... The police officer, the arresting detective, uh, immediately conveys sympathy for Vera, especially upon learning that she took no payment for the procedures, and he knows very well that there's only one way this will go. Um, at this point, have you any sliver of hope for a halfway happy ending? Um, I know she's going to jail. I've I was confident that she was going to prison, but she seemed so concerned about going to prison, and then she, she gets a sentence of what two and a half years or mm. something. We've after COVID, I could do two and a half years, no problem. <laughs> no fucking, I could do two and a half years on my head. You saying that just goes to show the major function that anal rape plays in our penal system. That's true. I believe it's a Penix system. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> a reference to Zardoz <laughs> nice there. Nice uh, Zardoz <laughs> reference there for any yeah, of you indeed. regular listeners. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, you're right. That I, I was having this thought yesterday, and that is exactly what I was doing. I was thinking like, yeah, I could survive the time, but could I beat off any potential uh, rapists? That was the other aspect that i was i was worried about and then i thought could i would they put me in solitary confinement or how would i deal with that like and then i thought yeah maybe solitary confinement would be preferable in the old bum uh sex uh camp there so yeah i think i could survive overall although there might be some uh, some unwanted attention from fellow inmates yeah personally i would not like to go to prison um but i you know, I mean, you're missing out. <laughs> I like I read a lot anyway. I'd probably get a lot more reading done if I was in prison. So anyway, in the police station, um, Vera makes a full confession and is later allowed to speak to her husband and urged to divulge her charges to him at that point, as she will have to stay the night in jail. Her husband can scarcely take the news, and when he speaks it to his children. Ethel more or less takes it in her stride, but Sid just can't stomach it. Reg offers his first signaling of an actual role in the story by detailing the squalor he grew up in and how some of Vera's type of help might have helped his mother. Um, he mentions right. that he, there was six of them in two rooms. Here's a big question for you, Andy. Where do you stand on abortion? Um, <laughs> do I have to actually give an opinion? I would say I'm pro-choice, basically. I think it's, a, yeah, I'm going to have to say woman's right to choose. Uh, I would, if I had to give my evidence, I would, I enjoy the uh, Arab strap song, Pro Your Life. Here are the lyrics to the song. You just have to accept mistakes happen and sometimes they have to be sorted. You know I'd love it, a little us would be sweet, but don't take that from your pro-life pal. She doesn't even eat meat. It's as simple as this, the time's not right. You need a new job and some sleep tonight. I feel like I've heard that song before. What's it called again? Yeah, it's a classic, uh, Pro Your Life by Arab Strap. All oh, right. Well, a fun pro, pro-abortion song. There you go. Well, you see, and one more question. Then. Have you ever read the book? Well, no, of course. Or ever seen the movie? Um, the Bible? No, the, <laughs> the Cider House Rules. Yeah, Now, sure. You see, I th- like I that film 
blew that book rather i i've never actually watched it from blew my mind when i was younger i haven't watched side Rose. i enjoy it um paul rudd well young toby Maguire. it's it's an excellent excellent book and it kind of was the first thing to ever show me that abortion deserves a much more nuanced position than the traditional pro-life pro-choice argument would give it i would ultimately be uh, pro-choice myself but the, like one of the things that kind of grilled me a little bit when it was being legalized in ireland in the last few years is it was being championed as you know a huge great victory for human rights which you know in a way it was um but very much leaving out for the fact that it's still a probably a decision that nobody would take lightly and that there, you know, there are like the circumstances that, like, it's not a, it can't be a basically. Or to quote, the, to quote the great Louis C.K., it's either taking a shit or it's killing a baby, but it's definitely killing a baby. And I think that apart from the cider house rules, Vera Drake around this t- this time in the film, it just sort of came together for me for like that it was offering just that sort of. That's that's the whole reason for Vera being the character that she is, is to offer that kind of nuance on it, because it is a grim thing. It's an extremely grim thing. But ultimately, she is she's she is helping these women. There's a, because there's a part in the police station, the police the officer refers to it as abortions. And she says, I know that's what you call them. I don't call them that. I just like I, I because. I really get tired of particularly an issue like this um, being politicized all the time when it's just like, you know, it's an issue that can have equally grave consequences for people on either side of the party line. And um, But this is it's funny to me, again, as a, a non, non-Irish, non non-Catholic, I don't even really, th- there's not even really an issue to me about it. Like, uh, I just see it as <laughs> the same way if I had to get a boil lanced yeah yeah no you see I, they, like even if it, I, if i had to get a sentient boil lanced the same ah it's not that though like it's just not <laughs> you're, you're so irish <laughs> ah you can call it what you like sanctity I like, of life uh but they're like yeah but i don't care you and you 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 say you're saying now that you wouldn't believe in what i'm saying but like you certainly would act like you believe in it you know what i mean there is a there is, and I, I didn't use the word sanctity well, I'm, i didn't I'm use the not word an abortion doctor yeah, yeah. and i don't have to deal with any of it no no that's but if that's you ask me to vote on it i would 100 percent say women's right to choose yeah so would i pre-birth yeah so but this again this is uh I guess this is this guy. I I don't. <laughs> I feel bad talking about it just because I feel like I'm. I have no skin in the game. Fair enough. And uh, you're expecting a child soon. <laughs> yeah, but like no, I have always just felt that like I do like I don't. It's one issue that I it really grates me to see it politicized because I think it's so much more deeper than what fucking party you vote for. Um, Fair play. Anyway, and I think this film does just a like the best job I've seen with it done on film. As to I can't. Well, what, apart from cider house rules, can you think of any other abortion topic? No, I know one came out. I'm scared oh, to Google abortion films. I watched it. Don't want to. I watched a, a doctor. No, a doctor. I watched a documentary uh, directed by um, that lunatic who originally directed American History X. 
Um, oh yeah, Tony K. Yeah, uh, he directed a documentary about it called, a called Lake of Fire, which is an interesting one as well. Anyway, I'll get on with it. I get on with it. Um, sorry for putting you on the stand there, Andy. Uh, the next day, any- I I never done nothing. <laughs> yeah, uh, Rev- Revolutionary Road. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Is yeah. that? A- yeah, I still haven't. I'm shockingly still haven't seen that. Um. Yeah. She. Yeah. Kate Winslet. Um. Self performs one an auto abortion. Ouch. Okay. Anyway, so the next day, Vera makes bail and emerges into a world where her son won't speak to her. Her sister-in-law vilifies her, and none of her cleaning clients will um step to her defense as a character witness. She makes it up to her son, and she makes it up with her son rather, not to her son. Um, and they have a Christmas uh, dinner, which Joyce attends in disgust. And uh, Reg saves the day by making a toast that's probably the film's most tearful moment, admitting that it's the best Christmas he's had in a long time. And, and having not expected Reg's story to go anywhere, I found this one deeply moving and satisfying. Even if uh, Heather Cranny massively overeggs the pudding as Joyce, her, ro- like, her role in painting, like, what's basically the demonization of the working class is crucial to the story because I feel like abortion emerges in the story because it's a hot button topic. But I feel like the main message seems to be a sort of a demonization of the working class in Britain. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, it's 1950. It just shows the double standard of the upper class wealthy lady can get an abortion. She has to, the system is horrible. She mm. has to get through a terror, like Sally Hawkins has to go through a tri- trial, a lake of fire or whatever Tony K said <laughs> to, to get that. But then there's no option left for the poor uh, working class ladies. And so what option do they have? They can have a child that could be the product of rape or that they can't support financially Mm. or else they have to go to someone like Vera Drake and risk their life. Like of all the scenes of Vera Drake helping women out, the most interesting, I I think simply because it wouldn't really occur to you, is the woman with seven children who doesn't want an eighth. And who like scuttles into the abortion to get one while her husband is seemingly sleeping off a drunken stupor or something. Anyway, Vera pleads guilty and they throw the book at her. She gets two and a half years in prison. And then she learns she'll likely be out in half her sentence with good behavior. And she just tearfully goes to her cell. And then the credits roll and you just sit there for about a minute, (laughs) I I feel. Uh, How did you expect this film to end? I guess that's what I thought. I, she's going to go to prison and then that's it. I mean, what else is there that she's going to kill herself or something? She seems, she doesn't look happy, but if it's only a year and a half, surely she's going to be fine. Mm. She talks to the two ladies who are in there for the similar crime. And they say, they both say that they're the woman that the reason they're in prison is because the woman that they, who fell ill in their cases, both of them died. But they also said it was their second time, perhaps suggesting that Vera is going to go back to doing the same thing again and, when she gets out. And they were both, of course, um, those actresses, regulars on the TV show Bad Girls. So perhaps um, sort of a shared universe going on with Vera Drake mm. and um, British drama series. I can't wait Bad until Girls. Peyton Reed makes a, a film of that, Vera Drake and the Bad Girls. 
and the multiverse of madness. Yeah. Yurt. I want the Mike Lee cinematic universe. Indeed, yeah. I would copy to that. I mean, it, 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 everything features Jim Broadbent. I think that's the rule. Oh, yeah. did you? He's great. Did you watch the uh, short film I sent you? No. Oh, fuck you, Andy. <laughs> I, just, I just remember now that you sent me it like last week. I did. The last podcast upon or just after. Upon request, you absolute prick. Um, Which one was this? The one from 1992 or whatever? A Sense of History, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Jim, yeah, Jim yeah, Broadbent yeah, yeah, wrote yeah, yeah, yeah. it. I, I read about it. It's very funny. It's really, really, really funny. Um, so, of the two films, prefer Topsy Turvy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's no no knock on Vera Drake, mm. but uh, Topsy Turvy is slightly more fun. No, they were both very good. Just a uh, tad. Very good week, but I finally did get the answer as to why I don't watch highbrow stuff I enjoy all the time, because I suppose it can genuinely be a bit emotionally draining. Especially two films that were almost entirely indoors in a time when I'm spending almost all my time indoors. <laughs> is uh, Yeah. Good point, good much. point. Get get out your Bear Grylls box set. I will. You're, I'll piss on it. All right. What have you got what have you got for the chopping block this week? Well, my film for next week is called Cold in July. Uh I think I came across this on Reddit at some point. I hadn't heard of it. It's from twenty fourteen. It is for, oh yeah, I think it's from twenty fifteen. Twenty fourteen? Twenty fifteen. It's from twenty fourteen. It is supposedly a solid little indie crime drama starring Michael C. Hall, the late Sam Shepard, and uh, Big Don Johnson. Big. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I've, I've seen a few people commenting on it that it's just like a well-made little thriller type thing. So I thought, why not choose something from the last decade? Awesome. and Decade. I, once again... I, I kind of hope you win because dragged across concrete is 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 my choice. Dragged across concrete is S. Craig Zaylor's third film. I've watched his his first uh, two films, both of which I really enjoyed, but were excessively gory. Um, I understand this one is more of the same, and I've just seen that this one is one hundred and fifty nine minutes in length. Um, why? Why is? Why would he do that? Is it another uh, Netflix thing or something? No, 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 no. This guy is. Well, read a little about uh, S. Craig Zaylor, and we'll talk about him next week. But this guy is. Um, if you win, otherwise yeah, we'll forget him forever. We'll forget him forever. Um, <laughs> Are you suggesting that this is rigged or something? Like you're like you're guaranteed to win. You've won like the last five. After I went through a, a spell of winning every uh, has it been five? Hardly, has it? It's something like that. It's quite a lot. Yeah, you know, it's, I feel like I, I, have, I haven't now. lost in a while. You definitely do win. Um, yeah, stars Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, though, so can't be all bad. Um, yep, but well, no one. Uh, the the famous liberal actors. The, the woke Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Right. Always is uh, Vince Vaughn a right-wing fellow? Yeah, he loves his guns, and he's not a fan of government. Oh, right. Good for him, he, I he, suppose. People wanted to cancel him for voting for Trump. Aye. All right, so what can I offer you? What can I offer you? I can offer you a one. Bring it out the big guns. Got a one euro right here. Yeah. Or, is a, or a face. A lady face. I'll go one. Because it's about time I won. Oh, you old dog, you. Okay, now, I can toss coins, despite what you've implied the last time. <laughs> okay, I'm watching this time. All right, look. So Let's see what happens. See? See that? 
Ya, oke sih. Oke, oke. All right, Phil. And you dropped it. Yeah, yeah. All <laughs> right, okay. I'll go well again. Done. I'll go again. He tried to catch it in the same hand. That's the problem. Oh wait, supposed to catch it in the other hand? No, 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 no. You didn't actually. No, you, 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 you were fine. I just go again. Aha! Right. So you went for What one. Was it then? I got ladyface. Mm -hmm. It is ladyface. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Fucking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute nonsense. <laughs> I don't even want to win. I, I don't. I to be honest, I don't care. Yeah. I think. So tell me, what was what were you going to pair with Cold in July? Oh, okay, what first. you could have won is actually a film that I have literally been trying to watch for ten years. Lo, uh, John Sayles' Lone Star, which I felt would have worked well. Oh, I think I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. from like '96 or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah Matthew yeah, McConaughey, Chris Cooper. With, uh, oh, yeah, Chris, Chris Cooper. I feel yeah, much yeah, like I think the, I've seen Lone the Star. city of Segovia, which I plan to visit every time I come to Madrid, but never do. That I'll just never see Lone Star. I'm just going to die not seeing Lone Star. So I may have forsaken your choice by picking Lone Star this week. Um, well, yeah, good because I, I, well, I don't want to watch Lone Star. <laughs> I'm sure I, I, I watched it a long time ago. The last John Sales film I can remember was uh, one with Danny Houston. Fuck, what's Matt it called? Wynn? I saw it in the cinema. Is it Matawan? No, 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 no. It was from like 2004. I saw it in the cinema in Glasgow. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, oh, um, Silver City. Mm, I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's got Chris Chris Cooper and Danny Houston. I was not a fan. Oh, okay. Not a fan. I generally like, well, I like everything I've seen of John Sale so far. I think it was one of his lesser works. Have you ever so. read his uh, unproduced uh, screenplay for a Jurassic Park sequel? No, but that sounds good. We're checking that out. Sounds, I like, the, I like where, his, where his thinking is. Um, okay, so I'm actually going to do something a little unorthodox this week. I'm going to give you a choice because I'm going to watch both Bone Tom Tomahawk and Brawl in Cell Block 99 because I've seen neither of them. Ah. And I know you've seen them both. So which one would you prefer to discuss next week? Um, can I pick both? Okay. I think I could manage you that. Can just, okay, but we don't want the whole thing to okay, spiral fair out of control. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good point. Uh, I'll go Bone Tomahawk. Haven't seen that in a while. Okay. All right then. But I'm going to watch Cell Brawl and Cell Block 99, so we can we can reference it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. So I'm going to watch all of them. A, spo a complete spoiler special for uh, S. Craig Zaylor's entire career. S. Craig Zaylor Zaller, whatever his name is. All right. Outstanding in a field. Okay. Well, uh, until then. Until that auspicious occasion, uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Vera Drake. Oh.